Ukraine was governed by competitive authoritarianism. I like this term very much because it underlines that Ukraine was an authoritarian state, but there was like some kind of semi-trade. Yeah, you could have some independent media. You could have opposition. So there was competition between potential dictators. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there was competition between potential dictators. Yes, but also competition. Um, so competitors could exist, but could not really get into the fair. Um, into the fair final battle. Like you could register an independent party, but you could not get, for example, space on the uh, key TV channel because they were all uh, controlled by the oligarchs. Why they actually gave in and how in this really non-competitive, corrupt voting environment, it was possible to finally hold uh, the elections which were recognized as rather, let's say, rather fair in the end of December uh, 2004 and uh, to bring to power the uh, democratically elected uh, leader. Katerina Zarembo is a Ukrainian policy analyst and university lecturer. Her area of expertise is foreign and security policy as well as civil society studies focusing on Ukraine. Since May of 2022, she has been a guest researcher at the Technical University Darmstadt in Germany. She is an associate fellow at the New Europe Center, and she also teaches at the National University of Kiev Mohyla Academy. Katerina, thanks for joining me on Ukraine Watch. Thank you very much for inviting me, Danny. Oh, pleasure's all mine. So you study civil society in Ukraine. What does that mean? How, how, how do we define civil society? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. There are many definitions of that. It usually happens in the academia. A broad umbrella one would be uh, this trend of society which glues the state and the rest of society together, which holds the state accountable, uh, which is, serves as a link, as a bridge, as a communicator between society and the state. This is, of course, a very wide definition. And there are multiple functions of civil society, uh, starting from, um, let's say, the functions which are usually associated with NGOs like uh, watchdogging and advocacy, um, holding the state accountable, uh, to many horizontal functions like caring about your community, doing something for your neighborhood, um, uh, reproducing and expanding the public good in the very broad meaning of the term. Uh, so in a nutshell, this is what civil society is very generally, like a general definition out there in the literature. Um, of course, uh, what exactly civil society is differs from, I would say, from environment to environment. And the Ukrainian civil society has a lot of its own interesting nuances and characteristics. And probably the most interesting one is that in the 90s, uh, the so-called post-communist countries to which Ukraine also belonged were characterized by the Western scholarship as lacking civil society whatsoever. Obviously, what happened starting from the first decade of 2000 onwards, so the Orange Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity, and all kinds of civic movements in between and alongside uh, refute that lack of society argument. And this is where I found it interesting at some point in, in the past, and I go on researching Ukraine civil society. Okay, so let's unpack some of that. So I want to talk to you about what the glue is that holds Ukraine together. But I also, I'm interested in the context of what environment that's in. So more broadly, so here's what I'm getting at. Um, you're saying that 
the researchers or there was this sort of idea in academia that post-Soviet countries lacked civil society. Do you see that as being true in other post-Soviet countries apart from Ukraine? Uh, yes, to an extent, yes, uh, because um, especially again in the 90s, uh, various uh, post-Soviet countries were characterized by many things uh, which collectively have been described as homo post-Sovieticus. Uh, so a person who would be distrustful to other individuals and organizations, a person not used to own initiative and proactiveness, um, a person not belonging to organizations because organizations are suspicious. From this perspective, I think this is um, what held true in the 90s for many post-Soviet states, if not all. I mean, I'm, I'm not a researcher of all post-Soviet civil sites, I have to say, uh, but I think at least in the European member, uh, European countries which belong to the former Soviet Union, like Moldova and Georgia. Yeah, we, we can find some similarities here. So um, the idea, sorry to interrupt you, but was the idea sort of that, you know, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the the state or the government system sort of took care of everything, which is sort of an oversimplified way of saying it. And then suddenly you're in this situation where it's different you are 100 percent correct indeed so getting independence in the 1991 let's underline was a matter of you know, overnight thing and the people remain the same obviously the ones who lived in ukraine in, on the 24th of august 1991 were the same who lived in the 23rd uh, and all kinds of these horizontal networks networks and proactiveness and initiative and taking care and responsibility for one's own life and one's own community where uh, the anti-Soviet things in Soviet Union stood for everything opposite uh, what I've just mentioned of what classic Western type civil society is. Now I, I specifically mentioned Western type because I think that civil society in Eastern Europe and for example in the US are two really different things at least when we try to there is an academic term, operationalize it in real life. So to, to actually see civil society in practice, and these are two different things. Uh, but um, but yes, you're completely right. So this was something that people just were not used to. And we saw an influx of Western donors in the 90s who tried to come and set up civil society, so somehow teach, teach society to, to have this activism and to be proactive and to, as I said, hold the state accountable. This led to the creation of NGOs, uh, which were not bad. Yeah, and they were quite professional. They were learning. Uh, and we can actually trace back some of Ukraine's powerful NGOs back to the 90s when they were set up. But uh, they uh, lacked connection to wider society. Yeah, so they were professional organizations, but they were not glued. They did not feel their societies or parts of society of their constituencies. Um, and they were so-called third sector, so neither state nor business, which operated, which promoted probably some good ideas, but um, could not communicate them well, um, basically neither to the society nor to the state. Um, yeah, okay, I will stop here for the next question. No, that's fine. Uh, mm -hmm. So I kind of get the impression from you that the reason it's interesting for you to study civil society in Ukraine is because of some of the maybe unique factors about it or some of the 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 trends in that you see on the ground in civil society in reality in Ukraine as being different from what 
you know, maybe traditional academia might have thought it would be. Is that fair? Absolutely. Then again, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, the truth is that this actually also, now you make me think, it's also about, again, decolonizing the Ukrainian voice. We speak a lot about um, decolonization these days and promoting Ukrainian studies and, and so on so forth. But it's also about, yeah, like bringing in to the general academic debate, to the international academic debate, new perspectives. And this is what um, uh, post, uh, uh, yeah. Don't like the term for Soviet, right? So the the newly independent, the independent countries of the Eastern Europe can offer. Uh, I think Ukraine is a wonderful case in point, given its rich recent tradition of social mobilization. An important um, uh, important characteristic or measurement of civil society, which pertains to the Western academia, is that it measures civil society as belonging to organizations. This is just one of many possible measurements, but this is what. Uh, the Western academia uh, took on board uh, when scholars said Ukraine lacks civil society. Because as in the 90s to today, we have the measurements which say that 80% of Ukrainians at least do not belong to any kind of uh, civil uh, civil society organizations. Um, and even if they do, I would assume, again, it's a lot about how the question is put in the survey, but I think many uh, many respondents wouldn't think, for example, of a parents' committee at school as civil society organization. I think they probably would, but unless you ask them they deliberately, they would say organization, like which organization? No, I'm not part of an organization. And then we go into this um, uh, debate about formal and informal organizations, registered and registered and so on and so forth. But again, uh, so this, yeah, this argument of, okay, you don't belong to organizations, that's why you don't have civil society. This is, of course, not true. Anyone who is in the least familiar with Ukraine would know that. Um, again, this was one of the starting points with my research. Um, and I got especially inspired to basically to tell the Ukrainian stories through the academic genre um, after the Revolution of Dignity, of course, when you could see not just civil society measured in millions, but multiple functions and forms. Uh, and the data was so rich that... Yeah, I just had to had to write and research, and not only me, but many of my friends and colleagues. So I'm not the only one, of course, who researches Ukrainian civil society. All right. Well, let's talk about the Ukrainian the Ukrainian story in the context of social mobilization, because we've got a few examples in Ukraine. Right? Um, you mentioned so far the Orange Revolution, the Revolution of Dignity, and obviously there's a full scale invasion of Ukraine happening right now. So let's start with the Orange Revolution. Um, without getting too far into the, into the backstory, there was an election in Ukraine. It was perceived as unfair or not resulting in a, a you know a, a true count of the votes. And what happened? And uh, yeah, and then people just came out to to manifest to demonstrate against the rigged election. It was exactly on the. Um, in, in the 20th of uh, November and on the 21st of November, we uh, just two days ago on the, on the date of recording um, of this interview, we uh, commemorate the Day of Dignity and Freedom, uh, which is um, uh, called after both revolutions, to the Orange Revolution and, and the Revolution of the Dignity. Uh, so the people came out and this was the, uh, as again in the academia, they said the academic puzzle, like why would people come out if they don't have, they don't belong to this and this societal blue, yeah, it's not like, okay, so I belong to a community, and this community thinks I, as a part of the community, we think it's wrong, so I will come out. No, no one coordinated with anyone. People just 
just felt it, they had to come out. And so it's also, I mean, I think it's closely connected with my personal and professional story because I was 17 at the time. I could not vote, but I could have a public stance. And uh, I was a first year student. I went out as, as my fellow students. Yeah, and I, I was thinking that, but am I entitled to protest if I'm not entitled to vote? But yeah, of course I am. So this was also like school of school of democracy. Yeah, this was the first um, for many, uh, for many people, I think then. Uh, and this was interesting. Uh, why did people come out? It was also interesting that basically in this very corrupt authoritarian state, look and weigh one of the researchers of Ukraine um, uh, in the 90s and Ukraine civil society, he says uh, that Ukraine was governed by competitive authoritarianism. I like this term very much because it underlines that Ukraine was an authoritarian state, but there was like some kind of semi-trade. Yeah? You could have some independent media, you could have opposition so there was competition between potential dictators <laughs> well and yeah i mean there was competition between potential dictators yes but also competition um so competitors could exist but could not really get into the fair um into the fair final battle like you could register an independent party but you could not get for example space on the uh, key tv channel because they were all uh, controlled by the oligarchs uh so how it happened that in this um, in this uh, space of competitive authoritarianism, uh, when we have to also remember that while in the recent revolutions in, in various parts of the world, social networks are very important mobilizing factor where people exchange information and also exchange free information. It's not only a mobilization uh, tool, but it's also about just sharing what's going on. This was not the case in 2004. We you, we had the Ukrainska Pravda as you know, first crowds of Ukraine independent online media, and we also had some opposition TV channels with which then gave prominence, uh, but they were really few. Uh, so, how in these conditions people came out, and most importantly, uh, one, yeah, one by peaceful protest. This was um, this was a story to research. This was a story to tell. So, why basically Kuchma uh, and uh, his. Uh, so the, the, uh, his successor, whom Kuchma bet upon, Viktor Yanukovych, why they actually gave in and how in this really non-competitive, corrupt voting environment, it was possible to finally hold uh, the elections, which were recognized as rather, let's say, rather fair in the end of December uh, 2004 and uh, to bring to power the uh, democratically elected uh, leader. Um, this was an, a very interesting, a yeah, very interesting page in Ukraine's um, recent history, which from the perspective of civil society um, meant that for Ukraine's mobilization story, this was the one-off event. Basically, people came out, people protested for a number of weeks, four or five weeks, yeah? And then they went home. So it was an automized society protesting. This automized society just went back. Um, we can't say that we start. There was a new tradition of civil society engagement starting. Of, you know, civil society advocacy becoming powerful. Not really. This was the, as they say in the literature, not my quote, the revolution of the people, not of the agencies. Um, now, the Euromaidan revolution dignity is completely different, well, not completely, but rather different story, and I will leave it to you for your comments now. Yeah, so I'm starting to see a thread emerge here, a sort of a common sort of theme coming through, and correct me if I'm wrong. So there was 
if you compare, let's say, Ukraine to Russia or its, its other post-Soviet neighbors, Russia, Belarus, right? In Russia and Belarus, you have an authoritarian state where the successor is handpicked. The same thing was tried in Ukraine, but it was thwarted by a spontaneous uprising of people. And so the question maybe that you're trying to figure out is why? <laughs> why in Ukraine did people just suddenly come out and 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 um, oppose, or why did they care about what was going to happen in their country as opposed to their neighbors where the regime just is self-perpetuating? That's one, one thread here. Um, the other one is that this civil society, right, These this group of people, whoever they are in Ukraine who view themselves as caring about what happens to their country or what happens to their fellow citizens, um, seems to be the X factor or the factor that is pushing the story along, whether you're talking about the Orange Revolution or the Revolution of Dignity or what's happening now, the resistance. So I gave, I threw a lot at you there. <laughs> so I don't yeah. Uh, let me boil it down to something to respond to. So do you, are you looking into why in Ukraine there's such an active civil society? Mm. Uh, I'm looking rather, yeah, okay, I have some hypotheses um, and I have not always tested them in my research. Um, I rather discuss them with, with people. But one of the... Um, uh, hypothesis about the Orange Revolution was that the pe people actually felt personally assaulted. So if they did not feel as belonging to communities, they still felt that their own vote, which they casted, was stolen. And they came out to protest for their own vote. So they wanted to say, let's not make fools of us. But I also have to say, I, mean, I, will, I have a lot of interesting data, which I will provide just in a minute, uh, you know, with, with responding to your question. But I have to say that I think there is still this puzzle of Ukrainian civil society because we can, of course, uh, run multiple surveys and they have been run and will be run. Like, why do you protest? What are your goals? And, I mean, we have questions to, to that. Uh, oh, sorry, answers to that. But the, the question we can, we can still discuss is why there is the critical mass in Ukraine which protests. And this is what Belarus and Russia doesn't have. Because if you have 200 protesters, if you have 2,000 of protesters with the legitimate demands and other severely sympathizing, uh, this is not enough. But if there are people who come out, who are ready to stand and do not bet even when they are shot at, then this is where, where there is more than... More that's than an interesting point that's an interesting picking point. up yeah yeah because mm -hmm. you, there are there have been protests in belarus and russia right and they've been they've been brutally suppressed whether it's yes. through just you know violence beating or, or or guns at the at the barrel of a gun there have been attempts to violently repress for example in during the revolution of dignity in ukraine i i remember watching that develop and it was sort of there was that point where the protests were dwindling down and there were maybe only a few students left um standing outside in kiev and then they were brutally beaten by police and the response was even more people came more out people. yes in ukraine absolutely. and so absolutely. that that critical mass that you're talking about it, it's interesting because the thing that What's the what's the thing that unites that critical mass? It, I'm I'm sure that's hard to pinpoint because it's not language, because there are 
people who speak both Russian and Ukrainian in Ukraine. It's not necessarily religion or even ethnic background. So I wonder, I wonder if, if you know, this is sort of repeating the same question, but it's curious to try to think about in Ukraine what it is that that is the cohesion, is the glue in civil society, because it doesn't seem to be what you would normally think of in a country like religion, language, ethnicity, that sort of thing. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I actually want to share some of my uh, recent research, which I did with my colleague Eric Martin, uh, and we have very interesting responses to the question of uh, what is civil society and do you think you belong to civil society? I will get to that in a minute, but before that, I would like to say that when you speak about Russia and when you speak about Russia uh, currently after the full-scale invasion, there has been so many comments from Russians saying, but what can we do? To Ukrainians, this is <laughs> this is not an argument. I mean, it doesn't fly in Ukraine at all. It's not accepted because if Russia is a big country, we know that. If just 1% or the population protests. Well, 1% is usually even below the critical mass of protests. You need some 7% of people to come out kind of, you know, from a academic perspective to achieve a result. In Russia, 1% is 1,400,000 people. Uh, if 1,400,000 people comes out, for example, in big cities, there will be not enough prisons. There will be not enough police. And this is this was what worked in Ukraine. So. I mean, you, you have to have this critical mass, but in Russia, in such a big country, you, you do have these people, it's there. I mean, you have such a big mobilization resource and it is total shame and disgrace that this big resource believes they're powerless. Now, as for Ukraine, um, actually my colleague and I, as I said, we found out some super interesting data. I'm just opening it, um, talking. Uh, so we, we asked people um, whether they, uh, uh, whether they uh, think uh, they belong uh, to civil society. And this is, uh, from sociological point of view, it's supposed to be not exactly correct question because you're not supposed to ask people these sociological abstract terms like civil society. And we assume that many people just say, no, what is this? But instead, and we surveyed uh, 1,000 respondents online, instead they said um, 80%, over 80% said, yes, we do. And then we asked, okay, then what is civil society for you? What makes you part of civil society? And the um, responses we responses we got are, you know, I, I know I know I'm not in a modest person here right now, but I think this is groundbreaking for the research on civil society because it has nothing to do with belonging to organizations, or not so much. I'll just read it out loud. So we have um, uh, we have four main codes and codes are categories to which we uh, uh, attributed the answers. So one big broad category is action-oriented responses. So we asked, why do you think you belong to society? What makes you part of society? And the answers were like, I want to help. Uh, I want to have impact. Um, I'm communicating, interacting with the others. I want or I do uh, volunteering donations um, contribute in any, in any sense to public good. So this is about action. Then another category, another category is about values. Extremely interesting. Civil society is usually defined through action, but let's say, for example, uh, even now after full-scale aggression, uh, full-scale invasion, uh, let's imagine the person is usually active, tends to be active, but they have a sick relative. And they are not taking action because they have something very important, a matter of life and death to tend to a personal matter. But they feel the values. And in a different circumstances, they would participate. So this is about values. The values were, for example, 
common vision, uh, being aware or interested or engaged in the situation. Uh, and an interesting question is like, why, what makes you part of civil society? And the answer is, I cannot not be. I mean, this is, there's no way I can't help it. I'm just, I am, this is the way I feel. Um, uh, and uh, values of love and respect, love for the country, love for the community um, were also mentioned. Uh, I mean, of course, these categories are also closed, so we cannot strictly, you know, define why from the other very rigidly, uh, but we tried. Um, another related category is responsibility-oriented category. So again, what makes first society, this is my duty, this is my responsibility, I have to do something, um, I'm defending the country against the aggressor, against Russia, uh, I'm a patriot, and this is my duty to, to take part. So this kind of responsibility-oriented um, responses, and then also belonging-oriented responses are an interesting part, Belonging to organizations falls here, but organizations are just one part. Other types of um, communities are like here. This is my community overall. Yeah, I'm part of these people, this community, this society. Um, I am a citizen of this country. I am part of the community. That is meant by the community. Um, I'm a member of an organization. Um, I am together. I'm engaged together with my friends or family, so with my inner circle, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this demonstrates that people define civil society from various perspectives, also not only through the action, but emotionally or intuitively. But what is important for us is to understand that this translates into action, regardless of whether people call that action or not, because according to our poll, but also other polls, 80% of the people are engaged since 24th of February in resistance. And 80% of the people, according to our service, say they belong to civil society. So we do see close connection here. Um, I think this is something that beats, you know, beats all the numbers, all the measurements which we used so far to measure and describe civil society, be it organizational membership or protest membership, because 80% is like through the roof. You would expect to see a third of active population, but not almost 100% traditionally. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see what this active population in Ukraine does after the war and how this all plays out. And it's amazing how much has been accomplished just by people getting together, even informally, to affect their lives and affect what the outcome of, of sometimes things that seem like you can't affect, like war. Uh, it's it's incredible. I, Katrina, I've, I've, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. There's so much more information that i would love to get into i think i if you if you'll have me I, i'd love to have you back so we can talk about this more yeah absolutely um maybe i suggest we can also collect maybe comments and questions under the video and we can then make a second out of responses because what basically you would right now um touched upon what will be onwards is something that worries me very much because if we're speaking about new vibrant tradition of civil society i would say it started after 2014 with the revolution of dignity when it was not about only protect but also about multiple functions like multiple functions, provisions medical care uh, volunteering in all kinds of ways helping the army of course after february 2014 and this function translated into some sustainable organizations and then some organizations fading away when there was no more need for them what we're having now we are, we're having civic activity on an even higher scale People acquiring new skills of fundraising, of running you know, organizations, working tirelessly 24-7. But we also have a huge trauma of a loss. And this loss, again, has multiple 
um, definitions, a loss of people in the first place, but also homes, past um, dreams, and so on and so forth. I would argue we don't have untraumatized people in the country. We have a traumatized society, even more than it was. Uh, how does this translate and combines with civic activity, uh, advocacy, and traditional, you know, traditional good, traditional watchdogging? We will have to see. Mm, so far, I don't have a hypothesis because this is an event which, in the recent decades, had no precedence of this scale. This scale, I would say. So we will, we will see. We'll see. All right, part two to come. Katerina Zarembo, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Daniel.